Let's go to the Lord and pray for the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a life and light, that it gives us a place to understand life. It also helps us to see where we're going. We thank you that it convicts us by the power of your spirit. But Lord, that it also encourages us and lifts us up. Father, I pray that in, as we read your word, we would hear the gospel clearly. We pray that your spirit would work through it in our hearts, uh, in the hearts of, uh, Lord, those who uh, are waiting to hear. And we pray uh, that you would uh, even change us through this word, that you'd make us more like Jesus, more gentle and patient and kind, loving and yet able to speak uh, truth. Help us in all of these things through the power of your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our reading is from uh, Luke 1. We finished the Judges series and we're on to Advent. Beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we're starting out our new uh, series in Advent, um, where we have a few weeks before Christmas to reflect on the coming of the savior of the world. Today we're looking at the story of the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. So at first glance, this is a story that we're all familiar with, but as we consider our text today, we have uh, some challenges to face uh, in light of this prophetic text. The story of Christmas is good news. It's good news. It's the story of the gospel. But as we read this story, with a modern lens, it can feel maybe too uh, fantastical, too outlandish to believe something like this would actually happen 
in history. In one swing of the ax, the story of Christmas cuts to the heart of our unbelief and yet restores those who are weak and needy. The story of Christmas is the story of the gospel, a supernatural event that affects our lives now just as much as it affected Mary's life then. So here's the main message of today's sermon. Your life and your heart must be impacted by the coming of Jesus as much as Mary was impacted 2,000 years ago. If I could whittle it down more, faith today remains just as miraculous. So here are three ways that God impresses this gospel narrative onto our hearts. This gospel narrative strengthens the weak, confounds the skeptic, and reforms the prideful. So we're going to go through each of these points. Strengthens the weak. Uh, Mary was not ready for what was coming. Maybe that's an understatement. Our text uh, today begins in the humble town of Galilee. Galilee was small, uh, kind of off the trade routes, and tiny in contrast with Jerusalem. It's here that Mary encounters, of all things, an angel. And the first interaction we notice is this angel Gabriel basically comes out of nowhere, and then Mary is rightfully afraid. I find it helpful at this point to consider Mary's position um, because it's, it's different than if an angel approached you today. So first, today, if you are betrothed to get married, uh, you are maybe in your 20s or your 30s. Walter Leefield, who wrote a helpful commentary in Luke, notes that most women would have been, tr- been betrothed about right after puberty. So most likely Mary is a young teenager. Not even a teenager, a young teenager. So to us, she's a child. Developmentally, she's a child. And she's having this miraculous encounter with an angel. Second, I want you to remember that she is from humble beginnings. She doesn't have a lot. She does not own a lot. She and Joseph are in this betrothal time, planning their lives together. I remember when Camden and I first got married, I had been, uh, we got married my last year of seminary, and I had been in school so many years that I was, I I became used to living off of pretty much nothing. So when Camden graduated a year before me and she took a part-time job as an art teacher for a Christian school, I felt like I was rich. (laughs) I remember we had enough money that I didn't have to buy the absolutely cheapest thing at the grocery store. I remember we had enough money that we could go out on a date. For me, it felt crazy. (laughs) Um, I'm sure that Mary had far, far less. Third, Mary is at the same time terrified and very thoughtful. Clearly, she was afraid because Gabriel's response in verse 30 is, do not be afraid. She's also afraid because of this miraculous conception that's going to be promised to her. What would people think about her? What would her husband think? But also for a teenager, she was remarkably thoughtful. Verse 29 says she tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be. 
So imagine you're this young girl betrothed, about to start your life with your husband, to be husband. You have this fear and anticipation of what is to come, and this angel comes out of nowhere and calls you favored. Mary must be thinking, she's discerning, why me? What is this? Is this even real? Is what I'm seeing actually happening? Why would I be favored? She's trying to work it out. But the fact that she doesn't have herself in view, I believe is the exact point of this text. Mary is not favored because she is extraordinary. She's favored because she's ordinary. For that time and place, she is like any other young woman betrothed, which, by the way, in that time, women were not seen as the vessel of strength. Rather, God chose not even a strong, mature woman, but he chose a young, impressionable, ordinary girl. As much as people have wanted to deify Mary, the thrust of this text is God provides everything that Mary lacks. All Mary has to do is nothing. In fact, that's her response at the end of the passage, isn't it? Verse 38, let it be to me according to your word. The message of our passage is the message of the gospel. And the first thing you need to know if you're new to Christianity, if you want to know how to be a Christian, the first thing you need to absolutely have is nothing. You don't need to be extraordinary. You, need to be, you do not need to be particularly smart or good-looking. You don't need to be wealthy or live in the right place or come from the right time. All you need is nothing. But nothing can be actually incredibly hard to have. So if I could say it another way, God makes use of the weakness of Mary. Or to say it another way, God in his divine providence intentionally chooses to work through weakness. He works through her fears, her anticipations, her youth, her humble town. He chooses the fairer sex to bring forth God as man. Mary will bear God's son in her belly. Would that scare you? Would it terrify you? Will it hurt? What will happen to me? Will I be torn apart by the power of God residing in me? The answer, God chooses to work in weakness. So here's the beauty of the gospel. It's for the weak. It's for the weak. It's for the needy. It's for the poor. It is for the homeless. It is for the helpless. It's for our children and little ones. It's for anyone who comes to God with an empty hand. But having nothing is harder than you think. I was recently doing a Bible study with our men in our men's New Hope group, and we were reading from Luke, same book, uh, in chapter 13, where Jesus, is chal Jesus challenges, of all people, Galileans. And he tells two stories. One story he tells of mass murder, and the other story of a tower falling on a random group of people in Siloam. Of both stories, he asks the Galileans, do you think these people were worse sinners 
because these horrible things happen to them. And he says, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Friends, there is something so desperately sick in us to think that we can bring anything to God. That there is anything that we can give him, any good work, any strength, any gift that he has not already given to us. So I call that illustration of Jesus, I call it the anti-karma passage. Because that's what it is. Every person in this room, by God's grace, is already given more than we deserve. Here's what God calls us to, to say with Mary, let it be to me according to your word. So God strengthens the weak, but I hope you can also see in this passage he confounds the skeptic. Let's move on to that. One of the uh, struggles the modern reader will have with this text is it's just too crazy. It's too fantastical. It's too outlandish. So first you have to get over the hump of actually believing in God. To believe that there's a supernatural being who created all things and rules all things and reigns over all things. But second, you need to believe that this God who is all-powerful somehow condescends to humans to have a mortal woman bear in her womb God's very son who is fully God and fully man. And then third, you need to believe in angels and the possibility of an immaculate, miraculous conception. Not, not immaculate, that's actually a Roman Catholic doctrine. It's also the immaculate reception, but we won't go there. So this is a lot for the modern reader. You know, things are changing around us very quickly, aren't they? It's often hard to keep up. I was speaking with my wife recently um, when we had some time together, and she asked me this general question about where I think we are as a society these days, how we might define our current age sociologically. So remember that just recently, um, most of the buzz was about, used to be about postmodernism. Postmodernism is this concept where everything was relative, where um, maybe you remember this, where your truth was your truth, my truth's my truth, and they're all part of this bigger truth. Well, times have changed, and they've changed quickly, and I believe we've seen a swing from postmodernism really in the past almost five to six years, where no longer is a truth relative, but morality uh, and judgmentalism have increased and they're drastically influenced by politics. Politics have become a catalyst of morality and that has in many places usurped the role of religion and in its place has left painful and lasting conflict. And I think we feel this conflict. In fact, maybe if you were uh, involved in any lively Thanksgiving conversations, you may have felt this conflict. That being said, I, I think there's a silver lining of something good that has happened. And that is that truth is not as relative as it once was. People are recognizing the need for justice, for mercy, for morality, and the question is, where will it come from? 
Where will it come from? That's the question. Who provides it? Who makes the rules? Who decides what is just or moral or good? So let me make a, a suggestion, suggestion to you if you're a skeptic of Christianity. And that is in this passage, God does not play this game. God doesn't attempt to make the birth story kind of believable for a modern reader. He makes it straight up miraculous. And I believe the point is this. Salvation is a miracle that has to come from outside ourselves. It has to come from outside. Morality, justice, mercy, truth cannot be found through any human philosophy or ideas. It has to come from outside. What's amazing about the time we are in is that people are searching, but they are looking inside and they need to look outside. If you study the scripture, you'll find an answer for those big questions of life, the, the questions science cannot answer. And in it, you'll find a God who cares for the least of these, for the outcast, who sets his love on the weak and the needy, who lifts up those who have been cast down in shame, who extends grace and forgiveness to all who would come to him. And yet, upholds justice and truth. And at the heart you will find this, an image of the grace and truth of God displayed in the person of Jesus. This Jesus, born of Mary, who will die to save us, is at the heart of God's message. So I hope you can see why this message is confounding for the skeptic. On the one hand, you have to believe in miracles, you have to believe in angels, you have to believe in God. Yet on the other hand, you have to believe that this God is coming for a purpose. What is God's purpose in sending Jesus? His purpose is you. His purpose is that he wants a relationship with you. God doesn't just want to tell you about grace and truth, about ideas or philosophies. He wants to show you grace and truth combined in a person, a person who gives his life for you, a person who knows you, whose feet have walked this earth, who experienced all the same kinds of griefs and sorrows, who knows what injustice feels like. Who knows the love of a mother and a father? Who gets sick? Who can appreciate the warmth of a fire on a cold day? He's fully human, and yet he's fully God. He is confounding, and he's beautiful. Now this incarnation, this incarnation, this God in the flesh brings us to our last point. And that's that we need to respond to this event. We need to be changed. We need to be reformed. So this is my last point. God reforms the prideful. Uh, what you may not be picking up on as you read this text is that there are a lot of parallel texts that, uh, that go along with this text. And they have nearly identical language as the text before us. An example comes from Isaiah, but there are other examples that come from the Psalms and the book of Daniel. Um, one example, verse 31, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus is almost identical to Isaiah 7, uh, four, verse 14. 
that says, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, but you shall call his name Emmanuel. The larger point is that this story, these promises are reflective of promises that have been given years and millennia ago. And even foreshadowed by miracles like Elizabeth being pregnant in her old age with John. The whole story of the Bible is this, that God is coming near. God is coming near. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we trace the story of God coming near, but not the other way around. What's unique about Christianity, more than any other religion, is that you cannot work your way to God. God has to come near to you, and that is the story of Christmas. God has come near, the Messiah is here, rejoice and be glad. Now, as good as this news is, there is something humbling in this message of the passage that we read today. God chose to come to the humble of this world and not to the proud. Jesus talks about this often in the, in the Gospels. For example, in the Beatitudes, he says things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Whenever Jesus comes into a town, he does not seek the, the biggest ruler or the person with the most power. He goes into the marketplace and he spends time with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus comes to, to raise up the humble and to bring down the prideful. Now we get the same message here, and here's that message. You need God to break into your life now just as much as God broke into Mary's life then. While the Christmas message is certainly miraculous, any person who comes to faith today has experienced a miracle. So what do I mean? What I mean that is, on our own, there is nothing that can change a prideful heart. A prideful heart does not know it's proud. It's insidious. How can you know what you need if you don't know you need it? You have to have God break into your life. And you can't just be told. You have to be shown. For example, it's one thing for me to tell you that you have a heavenly father who loves you. But it's another thing for you to know it deep down in your bones. So we recently watched... um, this new movie that came out called King Richard, which is about, um, I've seen nods, so some of you have seen this, uh, which is about Venus and Serena Williams, the tennis stars, and how their father Richard helped them to become the great uh, tennis superstars they are today. But there's a particular scene that really caught my heart as I watched it. I'd recommend this movie, it is a wholesome, it's a good movie. So Venus was just this 14-year-old girl, and she was about to go professional, and she had her first professional match. And she was facing the best tennis player in the world at 14 years old. Uh, And it was the last match of the tournament, and Venus was winning at 14 years old. Now, that kind of fame would create some pride, (laughs) some pressure. Her opponent did this nasty trick in the middle of the match where she went to the bathroom Uh, mid-game for about eight minutes and froze Venus out. So she comes back, and this is a small spoiler, but should not ruin the movie for you. Um, Venus loses the game, and she's devastated. 
So the next scene, we see this 14-year-old girl crying in the locker room after having lost this tennis match. She's wrestling with her pride. I should have done better. So Venus is crying, and Richard, her father, walks in. And Venus, in tears, says, I should have won. You were counting on me. And Richard says, you went toe-to-toe with the best tennis player in the whole world. He says, you had her shook. And then he paused, and he looked at his daughter in the eyes, and he said, I have never been more proud of another person in my whole life. In the next scene, Venus is fine. She's okay. She's okay because the person she trusts most, most, her father, has found her worthy when she was weak. You see, it's one thing to know Jesus, that you have a heavenly Father who loves you, but it's another for you to know and to hear that Father say to you, I accept you, I'm proud of you, especially when you're weak. The story of Christmas is good news for those who can receive the love of God, who know that they're loved not because of what they have accomplished, but because of what Jesus has accomplished on their behalf. At the end of this passage, we have this summarizing statement, nothing will be impossible for God. That's worth memorizing. Maybe you're here and you feel humbled. Maybe you've lost life. Maybe you feel weak. Or maybe you recognize for the first time that there's some pride to deal with. For all of us, we pray that God would break into our life, that we would receive him the way Mary did. And here's how we're called to respond when you hear the call of God in your life. We respond just like Mary. We say, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray.